My children have strong opinions. They are not afraid to share them either. When we play games, often they have a very clear picture of what they want. Sometimes it defies the law of physics, but that doesn't matter. They want to pursue it nonetheless. Ivan, in particular, wants to get us to play with him in the exact way that he imagines it. And he can get bent out of shape if the waffles are not cut just so, or if, for instance, he discovers the very cruel reality that you cannot sit on your own head. And when we play, I may be the dad, but we are playing on the imaginative terms of my kids. But of course, in a lot of other circumstances, I need to be the one setting the rules. I need to be the one setting the terms. When we eat dinner, vegetables and protein are actually important. Tooth care, not optional. Neither are bathing or sunscreen or hand washing or soon when they go to school, mask wearing. They just have to trust that these things are indeed important when they can't see why they are happening. But it's hard to believe us sometimes. They love to call me daddy and Emily mommy, but sometimes they don't like us to be daddy and mommy in their life. And if you think about it, most commitments are like that. Marriage vows are all well and good until your spouse and you reach an impasse, until health passes into sickness or wealth into poverty. It's in those times, those difficult times, when push comes to shove, that the vows really mean something, when the covenant of marriage means something. And in our text this week, Peter is ready to call Jesus the Christ, but he is not willing to let Jesus be the Christ, to be Lord on Jesus' own terms. Because when push comes to shove, Peter wants Jesus to be his kind of Christ, his kind of Lord, which is no Lord at all. Now, last week, we were in Caesarea Philippi with the disciples, and Jesus standing in the presence of shrines and temples, glorifying Caesar and other gods like Pan, asking the disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And who do you say that I am? And the big moment for Simon, right? That you are the Christ. And Jesus tells him that his declaration is from the Father. And he names him Peter and declares that he would be the rock on which he builds his church, against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, I sort of picture Peter high on his horse after this. Guys, did, uh, did you hear that? Did, did you? Call me Peter now because I am the rock. I am the rock on which Jesus is going to build his community, which means I rock. It seems like such a big, high point in the gospel story. Jesus has been rejected over and over again, but Peter says it. He calls him Christ. Now there's a problem. The problem is that calling Jesus the Christ, calling him Lord, assumes that you know what Christ means, or what Lord means. Now remember where we are. We're standing in front of this wall of imperial might, of shrines and temples, designed to display grand power, a huge display of what lordship looks like in the ancient world. 
I was part of Point Loma Nazarene University's parliamentary debate team as an undergrad, and we actually won multiple national championships as a squad. It was a pretty formative experience for me. Well, anytime that you're in a parliamentary debate, uh, the very first thing that a government does is it opens by a definition of terms. You get, uh, you get a line uh, that they have to interpret and turn it into a piece of legislation. Sure, the prompt says this house, but we are going to specifically talk about the state legislature of California or something else. And defining the terms well makes or breaks a debate. Well, Peter, Peter knows Jesus is the Christ. The problem is with his definition of the term. I think Peter looks at Jesus, the man who can heal the sick, looks at Jesus, who has the power to, with the word, calm the storm and walk on water and cast out demons, and he thinks, look, sure, he doesn't look like much right now, but what? You just wait. Wait until Jesus starts this revolution off the ground. Wait until he really starts getting going. A few years from now, it will be Jesus up there on the wall, Israel's warrior king, and I will, I will have gotten in on the ground level of this meteoric rise. Peter. Peter's got big plans for Jesus. He has big expectations for Christ. A couple of hundred years before this, there was another pagan empire that had conquered Israel, and there was a family called the Maccabeans who helped liberate the nation through revolt. Judas Maccabeus was a hero. His name means the hammer, and he brought the hammer down on the Seleucid Empire that had desecrated the temple. All of this, of course, looms large in the imagination of the Israelites. The Messiah, the Christ, would be the one who liberated the people who would establish God's own kingdom. And here's the thing about definitions. You don't need them for obvious distinctions. You know, nobody confuses a fish and a scorpion. Clear definitions become ever more important when two words or our ideas or concepts actually overlap a whole lot. The difference between a king and a president, an exhortation and reproach, the difference between a boyfriend, a fiance, and a spouse. These are extremely important distinctions because they are also so subtle and easy to confuse. If you've ever learned another language, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's easy to confuse two different words that mean very different things. But you see, Jesus, Jesus knows that Peter has just blustered his way into this revelation. Into the gospel, in the Gospel of Mark, the story comes right after the story of Jesus healing a man of blindness. But the man, he sees, but he sees men like trees walking around. And it's only after Jesus spits in the ground and and puts clay in his eyes that he eventually gains full sight. And the placement invites us to understand Peter sees, but he sees men like trees walking. He does not see rightly yet, at least not yet. And Jesus knows that his disciples, they do not understand the suffering nature of his kingship. They do not understand the transformational nature of his kingdom. They do not yet see that in Jesus, the triune Lord will subvert and overcome not just Rome, but all that Rome and Greece and Babylon and the Assyrians and everything else bows to powers and principalities. And so just after Jesus names Peter, 
he tries to explain what Christ means. And I, I want us to go back to that text. Matthew 16, 20 and following. And then he strictly charged the disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ because they didn't understand it, right? And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man, what harsh words. What a dramatic swing in this story where Peter was elevated, set aside, and now he's called Satan. Jesus speaks so plainly to them. They are always complaining about his parables not being clear enough, but here he gives it to them straight. And then he will be raised again on the third day. It's not that he's not being clear. It's that they just don't want to hear it. They have a very clear picture of what they want Jesus to be. They want to call Jesus Lord. but They want to call Jesus Lord on their own terms. They want him to be their kind of Lord, to do what they want him to do as Christ. Now, They don't have the imaginative capacity at this point to see the way that God will weave together the son of man from Daniel and the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 into one redemptive moment for the healing of the cosmos. Their vision is is too small and narrow, and that's okay. But what God is doing is both rooted in Israel's identity, and it has cosmic significance. All they need to do is trust. Now, Peter, no doubt, emboldened, actually rebukes Jesus. And and the word here is like scolding him. It's, It's punishing him. It's punishing him for saying such a thing. And Jesus, of course, has none of it. He says, get behind me, Satan. You have not set your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The way of suffering love will be the only way. The cross is not optional. It is the crucible in which the death and sin are finally confronted for what they are. All the false images of power behind him in all those shrines and temples gather power by taking it from others. They cast their nets into the world and gather up the nations like fish to be consumed. But Jesus, Jesus is not that kind Christ. He is not that kind of son of God. And anyone who wants him to be, to follow in the mold of leadership, is voicing Satan's desire for Jesus. And Jesus knows that he would rule the world like all the other rulers if he bowed to Satan. That he would be king without the cross, without suffering. But he rejected that. And he has continued to reject that since the devil tempted him in the wilderness in chapter 4. You see, Jesus is obedient. 
He is obedient to the Father. He submits himself to the Father's will. He will not shortcut this road to exaltation, to coronation. The words of Jesus sound so harsh, but Peter has put his nose right in the middle of a place of pain for Jesus, I believe. And Peter's rebuke reveals that he is not yet ready to let Jesus be Lord on Jesus' own terms, that he is not yet ready to take up his own cross. And as we know, he isn't ready for that yet. One day he would be, but not today. And if the text ended there, we could feel perhaps a bit safe. We don't have to let Jesus go and die in Jerusalem. He's already accomplished that stuff. That's not where the text ends. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, the road to discipleship is not one from glory to glory. The road to discipleship travels through the cross. Jesus is the one who overcomes sin and death on Golgotha, but we who belong to Jesus belong to that way. We are conformed to him through self-giving love, through obedience and faithfulness. And this is only possible, of course, through his Holy Spirit, which he gives us abundantly and freely. Now, last week I asked you all, who do you say that Jesus is? We as a church call him Lord, and most of us, I believe, on this call, call him Lord. But the question, the question I ask you this morning is on whose terms? On whose terms do you call Jesus Lord? Is it really on Jesus' terms? When the road opens up before us and it is going in the wrong direction, do we rebuke Jesus? When the pandemic sets in and the isolation and the grief, do you rebuke him? Or do you allow for Jesus to be Lord? Because we can't play this game expecting to set the terms, like my kids when we play. We can't call him Lord without submitting to him, even and especially when we do not understand what he is saying or doing, even and especially when we don't like what he is doing, even and especially when we can't see how God is working in and through whatever suffering we have in our lives. To allow Jesus to be our Lord on Jesus' terms requires us to crucify our idols. Idols that lurk beneath the surface of our definitions, lurk between, beneath the surface of our false hopes, lurk beneath our unspoken expectations of God. We want God to do things the way that we want him to do it. If we, ha- if we behave in a certain way, we expect to get a certain result but that is manipulative hogwash. It is reducing the Lord of the universe to a gumball machine in the sky, dispensing blessings on command. Instead, 
the Lord is Lord. The Lord is the one who creates and sustains and redeems. In Jesus, he carves a path of love across the scorched ground of power and violence. And he overcomes the wayward and twisted powers and principalities of our world that have already rooted themselves in our imaginations. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you call him Lord, allow for him to lead you through paths that you would not have chosen for yourself. Because calling him Lord on your own terms is not calling Jesus Lord at all. It's not calling Jesus Lord. It's wanting to be Lord yourself. And that, friends, that is the crux of the issue. Are you actually willing to allow for God to be God? Are you willing to submit to him? Or do you have other things which you want God to accomplish for you? Are there roams in your life which need to be overthrown? That is painful. And letting go of them is a kind of death. It's a kind of crucifixion of ourselves. But those who lose their life will find it. And that is the joy of calling Jesus Lord and letting him be Lord in our lives. Not to skip over crucifixion for coronation, but to walk the road of suffering love with Jesus. And friends, I know many of us, many of us are in places of desolation. But know this, you are not alone. And God will not waste the season of life that you are in if you pursue him and invite the Holy Spirit to continue to purify our hearts. That is a promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us.